Welcome. I'm Dr. Vinay Prasad. I'm a hematologist oncologist, and I'm associate professor of medicine at the University of California, San Francisco. In my professional life, I see patients, I teach trainees, and I do research in healthcare policy. This is Plenary Session. Plenary Session is a podcast at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy, and you're listening to Season 3. On this week's episode... This week on Plenary Session, I've got a discussion with Dr. Monica Gandhi, and then I'm joined with Sven Olsen for Classical Hematology Chat. If you like this podcast and want more content, follow me on Twitter at vprasadmdmph. Check out the YouTube channel, vinayprasadmdmph. Patreon backers will get access to the slides for lectures I give on Plenary Session. Want to hear from us? Email us your question at plenarysessionpodcast at gmail.com. In mobile plenary session, I'm on the road visiting a colleague, Dr. Monica Gandhi. Dr. Monica Gandhi is professor of medicine at the University of California, San Francisco. She's director of the HIV clinic here at San Francisco General Hospital. And she has one other title that I just forgot. <laughs> Dr. Gandhi, it's a pleasure to meet you. Nice to see you. What's the other thing you direct? Um, the, I'm the director of the Center for AIDS Research here. AIDS Research, that's right. So you do both clinical practice and also are concerned with the vulnerable population and research to improve outcomes here in San Francisco. Right, exactly. I've always worked with uh, the San Francisco general population. I've been here since 96 ah. um, when I started my residency and I wanted to be here at this hospital. There's no better place to be for HIV AIDS research. That's that? right. That's why I came to San Francisco because it was the epicenter of the pandemic of HIV AIDS in the country uh-huh. and um, it's still exciting and ongoing. Okay, so I have been following you with interest because you are talking about so many things in the COVID space that interest me um, and earning friends and enemies online. Is that fair to say? Well, so I never had any enemies before, like not even one, like not even, okay, okay, maybe like this one person when I was 10. So um, to be honest, it's been like really intense Uh and different. Um, So I had never been on Twitter before um, until April. And then someone, actually Ashish Jha, who I knew from Harvard said, okay, get on, on, uh, get on Twitter. And I have to go in and out because there's uh, times where I've earned some things that I, uh, or I've, I've, people have said things to me that were difficult. Um, the, the, I have friends that say nice things. Then I have two groups that are mad at me right now. One is um, a group of people who think that masking will limit their um, breathing or will limit their freedom. Uh-huh, um, and right. so there will be people that will write me and say, uh, that's unfair to um, you know my child that you want them to be developmentally developmentally delayed from oxygen deprivation. Oh, I see. Because Someone wrote me yes. A mask, so I that see. was really hard. Actually, I felt really bad because yeah. I definitely don't want their child to be developmentally delayed. Yes. And then the second thing that happened is recently I used the word immunity in a publication. And um, at the moment, the word immunity is um, a bad word. Mm-hmm. In, on the left with COVID-19, you're like actually not supposed to say that immunity is a, a body's natural response to viral infections, either from natural infection or from uh, vaccines at the moment. So I got attacked there. Um, it wasn't that bad. It didn't go on for very long, yes. but I had to shut down for a little while. Well, I think, I mean, I, 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 I feel for you on all these fronts, and I watched it a little bit, and I'm like, oh, no, poor, poor Monica Gandhi. Because um, 
you, you hadn't spent a lot of time on Twitter, so I don't think you have a sense of the dynamic. But let's talk about these issues. I mean, everything you're saying is, is quite reasonable and sensible and defensible, um, but it's, it sort of speaks to where we are at this current moment that it would upset so many people so deeply. So one of your positions, of course, is you are a proponent of wearing cloth masks, particularly in indoor spaces, particularly in public. Um, and you've written a really lovely article in the New England Journal of Medicine recently where you talked about the potential for masks not only to, um, in your opinion, reduce spread between people, but maybe potentially that if you were to acquire the disease, that you will be acquiring a lower viral load upon acquisition, you may have a milder course of illness. Is that a fair summary of, of your article on, and you used another word there you shouldn't have, variolation. Yeah, I really yeah. got in trouble with But So, um, yes, so that... That has been an observation that uh, uh, we've been making over time, is this question of if you get in a lower viral inoculum or dose, and we call it that specifically and not load, because load is really referring to what you produce afterwards. I see. Um, so if you get in a lower inoculum or dose, could that result in less severe disease? And then we've also been actually deeply looking at the literature because we're infectious disease doctors. And um, this is true of, of many diseases, not all though. So some viral infections like influenza, like rotavirus and like RSV, they've actually given to human volunteers. I see. And the more you give, the more sick they get in I challenge see. vaccine trials, for example. I see. Um, and so it is true of some diseases. And I feel like it could be true of SARS-CoV-2 because if you stay away from each other with social distancing this was a swiss study um there was a cohort of soldiers that like hung out with each other just like usual because it was before we knew about covid and there was 30 percent illness when they had cases break out and then there was the other two companies of swiss soldiers this is published in cid and they kept away from each other or they masked they did one or the other mm -hmm. but they kept they somehow stayed away from each other and there was zero percent illness in those two companies even though they had cases and we've been seeing this link that um, if you wear masks or socially distance, could you be exposed to less virus and get less sick? And we're gathering more evidence. It's actually important to gather more evidence after hearing all the criticism. Yes. Um, and so we're getting more evidence on mask mandates and what they do to hospitalizations, and we're working on it more. And then I think the important thing we have to do, we have to do is go back in history and show that this has been shown with other viral diseases. I so see. this is not out of the blue concept. So we're calling it the viral inoculum hypothesis. We're working on it. And some people believe in it and some people don't. And that's okay. I mean, it's a, it's a hypothesis at the moment, but I think we're getting more data. That, and that's what struck me about some of the response was that when I read your article, I felt like um, you, you provided a number of different streams of sort of corroborative evidence that this idea could be plausible. But I also felt like at the core you were saying this is a hypothesis that still requires additional information to fully adjudicate. Um, you were sort of, it's a working paper, if you will. Yes, it was circumspect. And I think where the problem came in is it was in the New England Journal. And um, that is a source of, you know, great, um, like, people read it. And so it made some people upset. And then they wrote letters um, because they wanted to be in the New England Journal, too. So, and, and, and luckily they got in, so they're probably very happy. But it's, it's, it's you know, it, wouldn't, it was in such a high-impact journal. But... Yeah. 
I actually, I've been giving this talk, I gave this talk to Johns Hopkins ID Grand Round yesterday, and I didn't get a single, single bit of pushback. In fact, a virologist wrote me and said, this is very interesting, we have to think about the viral inoculum. So I think it behooves us, actually, to go back to the literature, really put together a good review article, and I'm doing this with a fellow, yeah. and then people can see, wow, there has been other descriptors of measles, of influenza, of rotavirus, of RSV, where the amount that you get in matters. We're calling it Size Matters. That's not my idea, but that was someone else's <laughs> idea about what to call this review article. And there'll be some virologists and bacteriologists on this paper. I and I think once we get the paper out, it'll make people feel better that there's precedent. Yes. I mean, I th it's an interesting hypothesis. And it's certainly, um, there are other people who have advanced the hypothesis, particularly as we try to make sense of the changing fatality rate over yes. time, right? Yes. Talk about that? Yeah. Yes. I mean, that's... That's really true and interesting, and it's okay to say as well, by the way, that the second wave or the continuation of the first wave or whatever happened in July and August yeah. was less fatal than what happened in this country in March and April. Yes. And what did we put into play? We put into play shelter in place. We put into play social distancing. We had facial masking in the mix. We, a lot of people didn't go to work. Like There was many non-pharmaceutical interventions that yes. were put into play. Yes. And so I think they all contributed to that lower mortality mortality rate, yes. plus more young people getting infected, plus better treatments, plus better hospital preparedness, plus better work with our nursing homes. There are many factors. Yes. But it's okay to say it became less deadly. It doesn't mean you're minimizing this illness. And again, in this current climate, if you if there's even a question in your word that something is good and something is positive that's happening. Yes. You will get some people writing you because I've realized that Twitter is this kind of free-for-all and I never knew that you could talk to people you didn't know. I find it really confusing that people I don't know like are talking to me. Um, but, but they can say things like, that makes me feel really positive and people will say that. And then some people will say, no, no, no. You can't say anything good because if you say anything good and positive, then there is this risk that like Trump could get reelected. I mean, it's it's we're getting so completely conflated in how we're thinking about science right now and data right now that it nothing is making sense anymore. I've never, I've actually never seen anything like it. Yes, and I agree with you so much. Um, I guess uh, when I saw that that the fatality rate was down, I had a tweet similar to what you just said a minute ago, which is what could account for this? Well, the types of people being infected could be different, could be younger people. Um, it could be people even at the same age with different comorbidity patterns in a way that maybe our, even our covariates don't fully capture so they can't be fully adjusted for. It could be that therapeutics are getting better. It could be hospitals are not overcrowded, um, although here they have never been overcrowded. Yes, right. And then the fourth reason I said other, because I was too scared to say the, the possibility, the thing that's almost taboo to say, which is, is it possible that there's something about the lethality of the virus that's changed a little bit? Either we're wearing this, and so we're getting less inoculum. You're uh, pointing to your mask. And we're pointing to the mask, yes. <laughs> yes. That's snug. Um, uh, or is it, is it as you hypothesize, um, you know, related to the number of viral particles at, at, the, moment of con of contain at the moment you contract the illness? And I was scared to say it yeah. for, for what you're talking about, which is, I guess, kind of what I wanted to pick your brain about. Um, you know, I, I think you just said this a minute ago that you felt like you've never seen anything like it. And I think what you mean by that is you've never felt like, as a scientist, as an infectious disease expert, that there were some ideas you couldn't explore because of their political ramifications. Yes. And now you feel like, I have to be really careful exploring some ideas that's a very dangerous place to be for scientists or a scientist like you. 
Yes, I mean, it's never happened before in the sense that um, if you look how I wrote that article with George Rutherford, it was very carefully framed. There was maze and limitations and hypothesis and phrases that I've always done in academic writing because I've done a lot of academic writing. Right. So there was nothing about it that said, absolutely, this is becoming, this is not this big of a deal. That's just, I never remotely said that COVID-19 was not a big deal. And yet the position that that was posed, those words, limitations, hypothesis, all of this seemed to be gotten taken out. And I, and there was this phrase that like, if you minimize this, then you're doing what Trump and his cronies are doing. And thus you are, uh, you are um, complicit. Complicit. Yeah. And yeah, it's a great point. And that, it doesn't make sense because you should be able to speak and speculate and muse about phenomenons that you're seeing about what the viral inoculum's doing. You should be able to look back at the literature and say, wow, how interesting that this was seen with influenza and measles and dengue and rotavirus. And it, it, it was so interesting to sort of think of that because I love infectious disease. Like I love all aspects of it. So sure. it was such an interesting link to think about. And, um, and to be, but there's that positivity around it. Yes, Why? Right. Why is it positive? Because it says that you may yourself have some control over your risk, as opposed to this virus will go and find you and kill you no matter what. And that positivity aspect, because that positivity has been linked to the kind of things that Trump and uh, his cronies say, um, which is, you know, that this is not a big deal. Those, those phrase positive, that being positive right now doesn't seem to bode well. You're supposed to stick with the doom and gloom um, scenario or the or the playbook for right now and and, and uh, to get him out, to get yes. him out of the election. It's really interesting. Well, I think you're very honestly summarizing that, my, you know, myself and some other people's sort of impression of the space, but we don't hear it so honestly put. Um, you know, Trump says many things that are wrong. We have a few 10,000 page volume books here we could fill something <laughs> with all the things he says that are wrong right he occasionally like a broken watch says something that's right twice a day yeah. twice a day he yeah I think that's right um and just because someone is a liberal which I would actually put myself in that bucket doesn't mean we can't acknowledge that he occasionally says something right um some of the things that I think he said that are right are we need to prioritize opening schools which I think is not a bad idea because of all the things we do in society, schools benefit the most vulnerable people the most. I think it's a very, very important idea. I think that every other country yeah. that I can examine, uh, I actually did a podcast with someone in Canada yesterday and he literally stepped physically back from his Zoom when I said um, that our schools weren't open in the United States yeah. consistently. He said, what? Why would you not put children first? Yes. Why would that not have been the first thing? Why would a bar be open before school? Yes. How could this possibly be anything but a moral failing to not think about schools first? And so the word schools, yes, got conflated with... Um, Trump speaking and uh, Betsy DeVos and like these, the word school got, since he uttered it from his mouth, then we were all able on the left to say, oh my God, no, 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 no schools, um, because he said it. So you're right. It was awful because um, we still to this day, yes, right, in a very low community prevalence uh, region uh, in San Francisco at the moment. Uh, uh, Naomi Bardick wrote a, a piece the other day that said, this is the time to open. I mean, when it's low, we'll get start getting confidence. But to this day, our schools, public schools are not open in San Francisco, and there's not a clear opening date in sight. 
Yeah, and I think you can almost draw a line from Trump saying we ought to make this happen to the vociferous, passionate calls for it not to happen. And that scares me because whether or not it should happen should be based on the merits of the argument and irrespective of what he says. Yes. Um, And I examine the argument very closely, especially on this show where I've talked to many people, and I feel like the calculus is strongly in favor of opening schools, especially in places where test positivity rates are as low as they are, like the Bay Area. Yes, really. It's unconscionable. I mean, it's unconscionable. So childhood depression, childhood anxiety, childhood socialization, in-person learning, losing a whole year of your life, and then, like you said, the impact on parents, um, and especially low-income parents. I mean, I think what would be very important to say is that my entire career has been trying to figure out how to work with vulnerable populations and working with the poor. This is an all-out assault on the poor um, to not open schools and to say that it's okay for the poor to go out and work um, because they have to because they have low-income jobs, but everyone else sit in their house. Um, It is, is, let's, let's do more dialogue since we're on the left. Let's do more dialogue about the poor. Let's let's get Jacobin and Democracy Now and like let's let's go back to that those discussions that they used to have because it's not just one issue. It's not just COVID nineteen. That's not the only thing that's going on right now. Actually, terrible things are happening right now to the poor. Let's talk about that a little bit. Um, I I felt I feel like the appetite on the on Twitter among academics. I guess I should say a few things of my bias that I've observed. I feel like. Um, Academics on Twitter politically lean very far to the left, and they hate this president. I guess I'm not surprised because everyone, you know, a lot of people who hate this president for yeah. many of the things he said that are deeply hurtful, and many things he's done, which yes. are, I think, human rights violations, like separating children and parents. Yes. Um, and, but uh, you can hate someone, but that doesn't mean you should be blind with rage and miss occasionally that somebody you hate is saying something that potentially is valuable. Um, The economic argument. I mean, sometimes I feel like COVID is discussed in terms of there are lives that are being lost from the virus, which there are, and there are people who want the economy to go well for their pocketbook. But an economy going well has implications for people's physical and mental health as well. Um, When you shut down an economy, you... Some people have food insecurity, which we're hearing about in the Bay Area. I was reading a study there. Um, People suffer from depression. They turn to substance abuse. are we potentially seeing health impacts from some of the draconian measures we've done to, to stop the economy? Yes. Well, let's like think about San Francisco in that regard. So um, on October 10th, uh, San Francisco Chronicle put out a report that they went to the medical examiner. They said of the 1,050 bodies that have died from January to um, August to September, um, how, many, how many of those were, what are the causes? And there were 468 deaths from overdoses during that time. Mm-hmm. That compares to four, 441 total over the entire last year. So we're already, um, you know, heading into almost doubling our rate. Um, and on that day in October 10th, there was total in the city of San Francisco around 125 deaths from COVID from the beginning of the pandemic. So it was three times um, as many deaths from uh, overdose deaths than COVID. Then I look at the San Francisco Chronicles coverage or everyone's coverage, but specifically the Chronicles. And I kept on expecting, wow, they're the ones who broke that story. So what's the next thing? What are we doing? What's going on? Fentanyl lacing, incarceration, not de- decarceration, um, INQ hotels, depression um, and anxiety, uh, homelessness and, and housing people unevenly. What are all the things that we need to delve into that this terrible, terrible death rate has occurred from overdoses? But there wasn't 
follow-up because the stories went back to, we're doing a great job with COVID. Mm -hmm. And um, we are doing a great job with COVID. The Bay Area has done a very well, good job with COVID. As you say, the hospitals have never been overwhelmed. Um, I think there's two people with COVID-19 in the hospital right now. Um, and sometimes when you go to from two to four, that's reported as a 50% increase, um, but four is very, very low compared to our great hospital capacity. So, and it never, never, even in, during the surge, was yes. our hospitals, our hospitals ever overwhelmed. So if our hospitals didn't get overwhelmed, do we start thinking and turn to, okay, now what's going on with HIV? Well, so we just published a, a paper in AIDS that our virologic suppression rates have dropped up award 86 in the context of COVID-19, even though people have been doing their telehealth and whatnot, yes. because it's terribly important to have in-person care. Yes. So that I thought would be a big story. I actually wrote the Chronicle when we published that paper and I said, this is terrible. We've, we're the city of HIV and our virologic suppression rates just silence because that wasn't, it doesn't fit the narrative, right? Like the narrative right now is there's one thing that's going on in the city of San Francisco and one thing only. We are great. We are great. We are doing very well with mm -hmm. COVID. Let's ignore the needles. Let's ignore the encampments getting worse. Let's ignore the homeless. Let's ignore HIV outcomes, STI, uh, sexually transmitted disease outcomes getting worse, childhood vaccination rates. Let's go back to those issues that made this city so sort of progressive in terms of thinking of healthcare. Mm -hmm. And I am amazed at the single-minded focus. I, I, I am actually amazed at the single-minded focus. And I want us to bring, to come back into balance because I've lived here for 25 years and I want us to go back to the city that I knew that cared about HIV and STIs and childhood vaccinations and all these things that are going on. Hmm. I, I agree a lot with what you said. Um, do you think the city will be the same? So, I mean, one... They're all, the, they're all the things you mentioned. Two, this is a city that um, has had a labor shift like we've never seen before. Many, many companies that are huge employers with massive multi-billion dollar, hundred billion dollar market caps um, have told their workers they can work from home indefinitely. And you see the condominium market has never been hotter. More places lift, listed in San Francisco than ever before. Um, you know, just is this sort of a destabilizing event for the city? Uh, in a, a long-term sense? I mean, there can be things that are good about it. I mean, I will say that the complaints about the city of San Francisco prior to this was gentrification and how expensive it was and how people would earn so much at Google that it was so unaffordable yes. for middle class. And I mean middle class, let alone low-income housing. So if it can start equalizing things, that would be great. But I think that one factor that has gone into why we've done well in San Francisco is that it is a position of privilege. It is, this is a city, was not a city before this, at least not recently, that was an underprivileged city. This was an overprivileged city. And right. so that ability to stay home and that ability to shelter in place and that ability to work from home has played into how well we've done. And that's why we get accused of um, the elite dictating to the middle of the country. We get accused of what does it feel like to have actually truly a middle class or, um, you know, and not have just a very rich class and then a very low class. And that's how San Francisco's become. So we do have to remember that what played into the 2016 election was this idea that there's the coastal elites could dictate and not understand what people are going through. So if you're going through already, you are like living paycheck to paycheck and now 30% of your salary is down or you just lost your job or you don't even know if you're going to get another job or the stimulus package was unreliable 
terrible and it went for a while but didn't get re-ratified. I mean, what what does it feel like right now for you? It feels terrible. It feels like this country is never taking, is not taking care of you. And so if you're going to ask people to shelter in place, then what you do is you provide childcare if you're going to close the schools. You um, provide uh, money for people to be able to isolate and quarantine at home. So we did provide money called the Right to Recover for a little while in San Francisco, and then the money dried up. Where'd it go? Like what? what? So if if I wouldn't test, if uh, if I was uh, getting off the BART and I was um, undocumented immigrant, and I had to go to work. I wouldn't test if no one's going to give me money to stay home from yes. my job. So we have to do both, right? Like. We ha- you can't just say, it, do something that's easier to do when you're privileged and then not balance it out with helping the underprivileged do this. Otherwise, you open up, I mean, and, and, you, and you use non-pharmaceutical interventions to try to keep people safe. But you can't have this twilight zone. We've had this twilight zone where the poor are suffering and the rich are doing much better. I've heard some... Um... Well, actually, before I talk about that, I'm, I'm curious what your thoughts are about the dueling petitions out there. I don't know if you follow this. The Great Barrington Declaration um, with, and the Jon Snow memo. And I don't know if you signed either. I, haven't, I can't look through all the I didn't. I didn't. I didn't. You didn't sign either. Okay, no. so you're, you're neutral. <laughs> we, can tell, we can talk about that, too. Um, uh, they're 500 words and 900 words, and I, I read them carefully. And um, my sort of just brief summary would be the Great Barrington Declaration is a declaration that that makes the argument that there are many groups of people where the infection fatality rate of COVID, SARS-CoV-2, is um, not dissimilar from other types of viral illnesses. They even maybe make some food comparisons. And and it's 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 not a huge risk of death if somebody is 20 years old, um, doesn't have comorbidities and get infected. And their argument is that those people should, insofar as possible, get back to normal life, go to college, go to, you know, participate in abnormal activities. Um, and of course, it, it, um, it, um, and, and older people who are frailer with higher risk of death, they should protect themselves. It was quite vague about what that means, but that was the sort of general philosophy. Uh, the John Snow Declaration, my reading of it is sort of a rebuttal to the Great Barrington Declaration. It's another memo instead of a declaration, and they're getting signatories. Um, and their philosophy is that a vaccine is coming it's the only durable immunity is a vaccine immunity, which we can talk about. I mean, that's an idea that I hear bounced around there. Um, and that we should use restrictive measures, social isolation, these sorts of measures, um, to keep this virus low, potentially contact trace to drive it to zero, while we wait for that vaccine that may come. Um, what are your thoughts on these two memos? Why didn't you sign either one? Because I think that they're uh, they're actually there's kind of a false um, dichotomy between them. I truly do believe that um, people who probably signed like Barrington, though I've not looked at it, there are many who like me uh, think that lockdowns disproportionately impact the poor and are very very concerned about the backsliding of any. Um, any progress that we've made in this country to try to equalize. Um, so I am pro- possible, it is possible to have elements and ideas around both. So I do, uh, and that's why I, then that's where I would put my synthesis position. So my synthesis position is that I do think that lockdowns hurt 
disproportionately the poor and thus um, for those who can stay at home and that you know good for them like that's great that's wonderful like I come to work every day because I'm in a hospital but um, that's great like if your company's allowed it and that's great but because there are so many people who do have to go out and do low-income jobs then my position would be how do we do use non-pharmaceutical interventions in that context to help them keep safe and keep others safe while we await not only a vaccine but the possibility of natural infection leading to some degree of immunity in the population. So what's wrong with immunity? Actually, there's nothing wrong with immunity. So um, there is, uh, so that is the body's way of responding to infection since the beginning of time. So, um, uh, so we don't know the durability of immunity to natural infection, but it is important for the Um, people not just to look at antibody surveys because that's one arm of the immune system Uh, antibodies coming from B cells and the second arm of the immune system is T cells which arguably are the more durable form of how um, the body responds to viral infections and so many studies have come out that look like even with mild infection that you get T cell immunity so that I think argues well both of those forms of immunity argues well that a vaccine could stimulate both hope it stimulates T-cells, which, by the way, are not being looked at in in, uh, vaccine trials because we're in a hurry, and um, that isn't part of many of the vaccine trial designs. We're in a hurry. So we're looking at antibodies, and and how long will that, um, that, uh, that from immunity last from a vaccine? I don't know either. I don't know how long it'll last from natural immunity, and I don't know how long it'll last from a vaccine. If it doesn't last long enough from a vaccine, you'll need repeated doses, uh, like we do with measles. You will need um, uh, uh, you'll need to keep on monitoring people, and if the and and luckily at some point there'll be enough people immune at some point in the universe, in this world, that the virus will just stop going crazy on its own because they won't find susceptible people, and that will probably be a combination of some natural infection because no, not everyone can stay at home, mm-hmm. um, and uh, and uh, vaccine uh, mediated immunity at the end of the day. Now, in terms of everyone staying at home, since they can't, it sounds almost unreasonable to say that they should. What I mean is, if you have to work and you and the government hasn't decided to give you that paycheck so that you don't have to work, that your, that your food on your table isn't actually literally linked to employment, um, which is how this country works, then that means you have to work. So then what I deviate from the Barrington Declaration is, they have no emphasis on masking. And I do think that non-pharmaceutical interventions can be put into play in these workplaces, like you and I sitting here in the hospital every day um, with social distancing, with ventilation, with masking, universal masking. And that keeps a lot of people from getting infected. May not keep them every single person from getting infected. The only reason, way to get every single person from not being infected is to say, we're going to pay everyone to stay at home, and by the way, if you don't have a house, we're going to build your house. Um, since we're not going to do that, it's not the kind of country that we are, um, then let's acknowledge the reality of economics and say that people are going to be out and then figure out how to keep them safe and acknowledge that if they're out, they could be infected, sometimes even through their mask. But if they get a more mild infection and they get immunity, that is a good thing. What's wrong with having more mild disease? That's a good thing. That's actually what we're trying to do with vaccines. We're not just trying to decrease transmission, we're trying to decrease the severity of the disease. So I have a compromise and amalgam position between those two. And um, you don't have to be aligned with either. You can like 
really be concerned about disproportionate impact of this lockdown on the poor. You can really be convinced that masks are helpful. You can really want to protect the vulnerable. You can really believe that T cells and antibodies rise with a natural infection and wonder how long it's, uh, those are going to last and really, really look at that carefully. And you can be hopeful about a safe and effective vaccine. You can do all five of those simultaneously. Yeah, that's, uh, you put it so nicely. That's sort of my general feelings of, of, of all this. Um, one of the things that you said that's very interesting is, you know, I wonder if part of the reason why we had difficulty messaging on masks was because the first line of messaging was, you wear this to avoid spreading your droplets. You have offered two alternate lines of, of, of argument for why you ought to wear it. You wear this so we can all get back to work. We all want to have a function commerce. You wear this so that potentially when you acquire the virus, you'll acquire it at a lower viral particle count and you have a less serious in infection. Um, there's uncertainty for all those statements, right? We don't know 100% for sure, you know, that, that all of those statements are true. Um, but do you think we might have gotten more mileage if the messaging was more sort of multi-armed? Yes. You agree, yeah. Yes, I really agree, actually, because I do compare this to condoms and seatbelts, and I think of those two interventions in public health, that if something protects you, it is um, just human nature by evolutionary reasons that you will do something and be more likely if it's going to benefit you. I mean, that's okay to say that. Like, we're not in the most civic-minded um, duty space in this moment in this country in 2020. So if we had messaged earlier on that it protects you and others, like we now have changed our messaging in the city of San Francisco and in the state of California, we have um, now, because of all of this, not just our work, but multiple people's work, we have now changed our messaging. Um, I think that would have convinced more people to mask. And uh, it is a crazy thing to ask people to do, by the way, like cover their nose and mouth when like human interaction is based on facial expressions. And so it's a hard thing to change about people. And so we want to do the most effective messaging that we can. So I think you're right that it would have been better if we had done that at the beginning to say that it protected you. And I think there was enough evidence possibly from other viral diseases to say it, but even if there wasn't, I think there's accumulating evidence now that people should start thinking that way or messaging that way. And then the other thing is, because Trump didn't mask and he doesn't believe in masking, yeah, that, um, that never helped, that modeled horrible behavior, it modeled in a way that wasn't good, and then it led to people starting yelling at each other because a mask is such a visible symbol of your political alliance, and so then people could yell at each other and say, wear an F mask, and don't be stupid, and you're stupid, and why are you wearing a diaper on your face, and all this rancor and vitriol and all this going back and forth. Boy, we've had a terrible disorganized um, public uh, uh, masking response. So if I'm interested as an HIV doctor and as a sort of someone who thinks about behavior a lot because I am work with HIV, then why would we not be okay with anything that could message something that could protect you? Or at least hypothesize that that's true, right? And so um, 
It, it, yeah, we're in we're in a pickle in this country uh, because of our politics, and it's led to this just it's just led to this mess. It's felt terrible. Everyone is miserable. That's the other thing I want to say. I don't think there's a single person who's been happy over the last nine months. This has been super hard for everyone. Right, left, middle. Like this is we just this twilight zone of whether we're not open, we're going to close. The constant threat. School's not open. We have had a, a harder response than anyone. It's been really hard. I think you you summed up so many interesting themes, and I wonder if I might ask you about, um, you know, I was uh, I moved from Portland to here, and as I came down, I was driving, um, and I woke up really early, like five a.m. to get on the road, and as I was driving at like six a.m. in Portland, I saw a guy biking. The street was desolate, uphill at a, quite a clip, wearing his cloth mask, and it's just soaked with sweat, and he's just 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 getting obliterated. And I recently carried a box of books up these flights of stairs to put in my office here and uh, with a mask on I was like oh my god I'm gonna die I mean it's really it's not easy when you gotta when you really work and there is no risk for anyone around there's no risk for anyone then I drive out of Portland I get about two three hours out of Portland I'm in Trump Pence country and I stop to kind of pick up some get some gas um, and it's like Mardi Gras. There's no masks, and people are just walking around, and I'm like, the mall is open. I'm like, what the hell is going on? And then I get to the Bay Area, and you can tell you're getting close to the Bay because you see a mask, 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 get close to the Bay. Um, so, it's wearing your political party yeah. on your sleeve, I guess, and it's it's amazing, right? Like, yeah. usually you can't tell by looking at someone's yes. face, but yes. now you can. Now you can. And instead of being linked to, like, principles of the virus or how it's transmitted or... Like, it's just being linked to this. It's being linked to politics. So to me, of course, no one's listening to each other. There is this statement that this UK scientist said. She said, um, she was also arguing against the lockdowns. Uh, and she said, someone said to her, I know how to keep everyone safe. Just keep them behind their front door. And she said, okay, imagine taking your front door, shrinking it, turning it horizontal and putting it on your face. <laughs> then you can go out your front door. And her concept was... Given the reality that people have to go out and they have to shop and they have to work and that um, and that people are profoundly lonely, yeah. and that's an important thing to talk about, and profoundly lonely, um, let's think of this kind of harm reduction aspect. By the way, there may be a case or two. There may be a case or two, and that's that's important to not panic about. That's I think very important. What I want to panic about is severity of disease. As a doctor, I have to panic about morbidity, severity of disease, mortality, uh, people getting sick. That has to be my panic. I don't think I'm going to sit in case count and be panicked about that. You know, you, um, in just talking for this, these last, I guess, hopefully we talk 30 minutes, um, uh, you've outlined, I think, sort of an unspoken philosophy of being an infectious disease doctor, which is don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. Yeah. That it's about harm reduction, you don't have to get to zero. And you also talked about, I think, the perverse role of the media. I wonder if we might talk about the media a second. You know, early in the pandemic, when people were looking to vent, they go to the beach or something, and there are all those photos shot at an angle that always looks like people are closer than they actually are if you had sort of an overhead shot. Yeah. Um, but we know going to the beach is like, you know, not the worst thing to do. In fact, maybe we should encourage going to the beach so that it gets people from doing other things. Yes. Um, do you think that sometimes in a quest to shame or make the perfect the enemy of the good, we've actually done ourselves a disservice? Yes. I mean, I think there's no doubt that outside time is safer than inside, that 
we're lucky that we have outdoor spaces, especially in the Bay Area. It's not as cold as other places and that it's a safer place to be and that people are profoundly lonely. So if you put all five of those things together, we should be encouraging people to be outside. So I was actually reading like the California State Department of Public Health um, guidelines about what to do on Thanksgiving. And I'm not kidding, they, they actually literally said this. You may get together with two other families and you have to have a place um, in your home where three, three sections are completely open to the outside. So I'm like, wow, like imagine all the California like projects where you, you have your perfect veranda with yeah. three places open yeah. to the outside. Perfect. So yeah. in what you instead have to do, right, is like take people's realities, take the con concepts. So what are the concepts? The concepts are staying away from each other, social distance, the con and also staying within your family units. So huddling more closely in the family units. Second concept is masking. Third is concept is ventilation, however that's achieved. And you take those three and you don't put in specific practices like you may not get together for more than two hours yeah. even though there's no biological basis for that. You put those three concepts together and say these are ways to keep safe. And then you put one other concept on it which is that people are lonely yeah. and people are depressed and it's getting darker and it's going into winter. And I know that the proper thing is you're supposed to, I'm supposed to say as an infectious disease doctor, going into winter means that you can spread the virus more. But I think as an HIV doctor, because I see my patients every day, is going into winter means that the days are getting shorter and people are getting more depressed. And so put all of it together, right? Like public health is not just about one virus. Public health is about depression and suicide and overdoses and loneliness. And I'll give you a personal anecdote. I was widowed at the end of last year. And... Um, and then there was a pandemic and suddenly no one uh, came and saw uh, my uh, boys and me. And I was thinking, wow, it, it seems like they're trying to keep me safe and stuff. But on the other hand, like, wow, no one's visiting the widow and the, and the, and the little kids. And you can see that from two sides of the coin, like um, that I have felt really lonely in this pandemic, um, uh, losing uh, one member of my family. A very important member of my family. And so um, I think that it may give me a more nuanced view. And it could be that everyone's bringing their personal into their um, into their scientific ideas because there's no doubt that we're all full of bias. So an epidemiologist who doesn't see patients, who's a PhD epidemiologist who can sit in their house all day, may have a different bias than me coming to work or me, um, you know, wanting to, my children to be around people. So it's it's also like profoundly biased. By the way, we've always been biased in science, right? Like we've yes. killed people for saying what we didn't want them to say. Yes. Um, so uh, this is not a new phenomenon. But yes. please admit that people are biased. I'm biased. I'm admitting it frankly to you. I'm completely biased. I think that my patients are lonely and I want them to see people. I, I think... Um... I think you, you put it so articulately, and I'm so sorry for your loss. Thank um, you. I think, you know, we, I, I recently had somebody say, I was, I was arguing in favor of like opening schools, and they said, you know, if you really put your money where your mouth is and, um, and uh, come be a substitute teacher here, then you'll see what it's like. And I'm like, you know, I work in a hospital, and I'm going in to see patients. You see vulnerable patients <laughs> yeah. with cancer at San Francisco who, General. Who don't get screened yeah. for SARS-CoV-2. So, um, but I think, you know, I think you hit on so many things. One. Our people are lonely and suffering on, in, in, in so many different ways. And I think sometimes I want to say on Twitter is that, you know, people are quick to... When people are suffering and angry and frustrated, of course they're going to attack you for some of your views or someone else for some of their views. 
it's not the best, it's not their best self. Um, and I, so I, I want to think that, you know, everyone acknowledges this, that like we're all suffering mentally, but they also simultaneously believe that their temperament on Twitter is just perfect. I was like, the two things aren't true. Right? <laughs> your, your temperament's not perfect. Either. You know, um, and so we should be taking those breaks. Um, and then I think the other thing you said that really strikes with me is that, um, that, and I've had a few guests on who've done one, one guy, um, I don't know if you know him, Steph Burrell from Hopkins. Yes. Yeah. So, you know, he talked about, you know, having had a lot of boots on the ground public health experience, people view it differently. He's very concerned with the absolutism, very concerned with how we wanted to make Sweden some sort of whipping boy when they were really making choices that I think he thinks are very reasonable choices. Mm -hmm. Um, Did they make mistakes? Sure. But did they keep schools going throughout all this? Yeah. And that's a major value. Um, and there is a group of people who are wealthy, they can order from Uber Eats and they can sit at home and they don't have to leave their house. And it's easy if you have that bias to say, stay locked down, stay separated yes, forever. Yes, it is. The, it's yeah. really interesting. Like you have to look at their personal economic and their personal mental health situations. They're, they Maybe they're not, um, maybe they, uh, you know, the whole family could stay at home and they have enough rooms in the house that yes. one child can be here and one child can be here and I'll be at home. I mean, it is absolutely informed by their bias. And uh, because the poor don't have a say. Yes. Um, or uh, they're trying to find some mouthpiece and the, and there's, what's the mouthpiece? Like sometimes it's a crazy mouthpiece. But it's, it's I mean, that's, that's the amazing aspect of this is because this virus can infect anyone, unlike HIV where there are specific risk factors, and that's, okay, fair to compare the two pandemics. That means that people get to bring their own bias in when they discuss public health, yeah. their own bias of privilege. And that is, to me, amazing because none of us are speaking without bias. None of us. That's important. To and also what's ethical, right? Like, is it not ethical? Is it, un- is it ethical to keep a dying person in the hospital on palliative care without seeing their family? So that there's a question of COVID, I mean, or is it more ethical to use non-pharmaceutical interventions and bring the whole family in because someone's dying of cancer? Yeah. Like, what is, where do we get, like, what's, where did it get to be ethical that we are keeping people alone who are dying, for example? I'm sure this is uh, very close to your heart in cancer. Yeah, when when it happened in the initial things and you had, like, your patient in the ICU dying and they were, had zero tolerance policies, that's uh, just not... It's, it's, it's not acceptable. It's, I mean, yeah. yeah, I mean, there's an ethics argument yeah, here that, no, like, I mean, where think, are you being, quote, good, right? Yeah. Because this phrase, good, gets to be brought yeah. into play, which is amazing. Where do you get to be, where do you get to come off using the word good to equate with how much you can keep yourself safe from COVID? You're maybe privileged, you're lucky, but I wouldn't use the word good or bad. That's well put, yeah. Well, the reason I think about that so much is because these words good are used a lot with people living with HIV, and especially at the beginning of the pandemic, but also many of my patients now are like, oh my God, this is like living it all over again because like none of my friends will see me and like I'm so lonely and it just feels like I'm going through the beginning. But we use these words about people's behavior that weren't like, um, you know, that that sexuality is a part of life and that like we have to just figure out how to do harm reduction and stuff. We didn't use those words. We use words like good. We use words like dirty. We use words like you are bad yeah. because you do this and you got infected. And we do that now. That's yeah, all we do now. Yeah. yeah. Oh, so well, that's such an astute observation. Um, I recently was asked by a reporter 
you know, what do you think will happen in the fall? Will the U.S. reinstitute lockdowns at what thresholds and things like that? And, and I wanted to say, the other thing being a clinician gives you is a little bit of a finger on the pulse of how, yeah. as you talk about, as many of your poor patients are feeling. And I wanted to say, and you know, I'm from the Midwest, and I have a lot of friends back in Indiana and Kentucky and places like that, and I talk to them on the phone and, and um, get a sense of what the, the, the temperament is. And I, and I just told this reporter that I think that that's almost off the table in this country, that there would be massive upheaval, societal upheaval, if you tried to do that. Um, and, and, and public health has always been about meeting people where they are, not where yeah. you wish they were. Um, it used to be. It used to be. It's we, not at the moment, I, I think. think. Steph Burrell came on this podcast, and he said that he said public health used to be a service industry to people, and now it's an enforcement industry. Yeah. And, and he felt deeply concerned about that. And many of the things that you've said echo that 100%. You're concerned with the poor, with people who have to work. Um and the admission that everyone is approaching this through the lens of their own life, um, you know, it's if you have extra space in your house or a yard, which there are things we don't have in California, yeah. um, you know, it's a lot easier to stay there all the time. Right. Uh, but, you know, people who are trapped in tiny places with, you know, no child care, no school. Have and everyone don't have the computers, yeah. but if they have it, it goes right. in and out and you're just like... And you're on top of your children and you can't go to work and so you can't earn money for your family because the child has nowhere to go and the child was getting food at school. Like it is incon... We have had a moral failing at this moment with mm-hmm. schools. And so now I don't know... Boy, I don't know how long it's going to take to repair a lot of this damage. But you're right about public health. The way I always thought of public health because I'm in HIV and because in HIV you're working with a population that got stigmatized, at least in this country, gay men, period. Gay people got stigmatized, get stigmatized. So it was always about um, like meeting people where they were. Like, of course you want to have sex like heterosexual people want to have sex. That is really okay. So let's now talk about like PrEP or things that you can do uh, in a public health messaging. But this has been like kind of a, I don't know, I've been seeing public health officials and some of them have a really power-hungry gleam in their eye. Like, I recently, <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. I heard one say, if we see cases, I'm not going to hesitate to shut down or get aggressive. And I'm like, wow, like, that must feel really exciting to say, dictator yeah. or public health man. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but think about what you mean by that. Think about all the things that you should be balancing right now in public health. If you were asked by... President-elect Biden to advise on the administration, what would be the sorts of things you told him to do? Um, How do we course correct from where we are now? You know, I have, I'm so convinced about masks, I have to say that, like, I've been just watching, like, Japan. I want to say one thing about Japan. So Japan, I've asked very many people, like, what's your compliance rate with masking? They say 110%. (laughs) It's not even 100. So in that context, there was this study uh, just the other day published in MedArchive that in Tokyo, they're out. They're like out. They're like so crowded and they're like walking on the street, but everyone's in transportation. They're all in the offices. They're on school. But they have masks on. And there was this amazing study that showed that their seroprevalence went from 4.6 at the beginning of the summer Mm -hmm. to 46.8%. Yeah. I mean, like... People are being exposed yeah. and, and the cases they're aren't totally really the asymptomatic, yeah. no severe illness, no hospitalizations, yeah. and they may be getting some natural immunity and they're out and they're not miserable. So I would impose a national mask mandate. And I know that that's a very controversial thing for me to say because it doesn't go with my laissez-faire harm yes, reduction yes. principles. 
But this is how much I believe that if everyone wore a mask, we could get through it, that I'd even go so far as to say that like seatbelts, we should enforce it. And so I'm, I'm going to go that far. And I actually, you know, the national mask mandate thing, the way our structure works, you'd actually have to have a act to do that. But I really believe it. And the other day, Fauci said on CNN, he said, maybe we do need a national mask mandate. I just, I just, I mean, just to put to what you're saying is, I mean, you believe it's very important people ought to do it, but, um, I guess my question is, will the mandate get us there? Or maybe we need different messaging strategies. We need to go and tell people like, hey, this is for you, buddy. Yes. It's like seatbelts. So, okay, okay, so go back to the seatbelt argument. I don't think we remembered maybe because like you and I were definitely yeah, I too young to remember. Cause I well, you're even younger than I, than me, but I uh, uh, than I. But I remember like hanging upside down in the car. And there was no like yeah. seatbelts, and then I went for, as a child from no seatbelt seatbelts. And well, when I grew up, there was a rule: no seatbelt in the back seat. You only need it in the front. Oh, seat. okay. So you were also transitioning. Okay, and so and it felt really free. We were like upside down, and my sister and I. But then it felt really restrictive, yeah. and many people took that to heart. Um, but it was to protect them, yeah. and that pounding and the pounding of the messaging. Yes. Uh, with sometimes you can be stopped and fined, um, uh, really got us there, right? Like, yeah. it's pretty hard to see people without seatbelts. So I would say, and then it becomes this habit, yeah, so and then a, you get the, the habit thing. Habit, like, brushing your teeth. You, yeah, you know, it's, it's not that hard. Not, I feel uncomfortable if I'm not wearing it. You're like, yeah, yeah, you feel naked without yeah. a mask. Like, yeah. this is my child has already said this to me, and she's only 10. So I think that that's interesting to think that, yes. No, I actually, I mean, I would start with messaging kindly, messaging um, consistently, I messaging see. appropriately, and messaging of protection you at this moment moment we have a mess in messaging because we have people mocking each other at the national level if they wear a mask and somehow calling their masks very big um and um so trump doing that to biden that that's really unpleasant because then it just looks like you're mocking someone for doing i think what's the right thing so it is um but i want to watch my language not the right thing but something that will be protective yes um but so it is, it is, uh, our messaging is all messed up. So okay. we need to scratch okay. this, start over, good messaging, and I think we could get there. Okay. And then, um, and, and schools, you feel strongly? Yeah, I feel strongly. Schools should be open. Yeah. So <clears throat> with the four elements in place, universal masking, uh, distancing, if we can do it as much as you can, ventilation. Actually, every school can do ventilation because if you don't have window, I mean, there were actually pictures in the 1918 pandemic because they couldn't even conceive of closing schools. So there was people in Boston and they were outside and like the kids, their feet were on cinder blocks. But we're in a different situation now where ventilation can be brought in. Um, and I think with those three principles, I know a lot of people will want to do a lot of testing. Um, I'm not actually as much of a fan of uh, frequent testing um, because I yeah, think that, the, that yeah. I think the testing should be mirroring the community prevalence. So we have low community prevalence in the city of San Francisco, for example. Then... Let's actually, this is a good example. Let's use the situation that you and I are sitting in right now. We have been coming to every uh, every day to work since March 1st. Nothing's changed, but with public health principles at play, universal masking, distancing, we've moved everyone around in their offices. Yes. Some of us have private offices. Some of us have to space, and uh, we don't eat in front of each other, and we ventilate. We don't get, we don't get tested regularly. Right. I've never been uh, tested I'm, in this yeah, hospital um, because... The grocery store workers don't get tested regularly because what we decided was non-pharmaceutical interventions work. We're going to put these into play and we're going to watch people not get sick. And that's exactly what's happened in these two settings that have been consistently open. So frequently testing 
will not only be expensive, it will be confusing. Yes. It will close down cohorts. Children will be in and out of school. Yes. And, um, and, and especially with our low community prevalence rate, it will waste resources because currently there's a, it's $130 per test. I and I keep on thinking in my mind, wow, viral load is X. And, you know, I keep on thinking about STIs and other things we could be sending this money, uh, city's money on. Yeah. So I'm not a fan of testing our way out of the pandemic. I'm a fan of selective testing. Okay. And selective testing would be in nursing homes, in jails, in inpatient hospitalized patients. Um, in, in We can certainly do it some in schools, but I would not do it as frequently frequently as being proposed, certainly upon entry, and we can do it at a certain frequency, that depends on the community prevalence. I see. So I think you can think about this more smartly, because we also think about the resources in testing when we think about city money. Yes. And it sounds like um, then the third pillar would be to provide money to pay for things yes. we need to pay for, like people to at home and convalesce and stimulus checks and those things that is so incredibly imperative it's like you know not paying for maternity leave or something you know europe versus the united yes. states like it is so imperative to allow people if you want to tell them to stay at home and in fact you're saying tis 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 from a public health standpoint yes. you better stay at home if you've been exposed to someone you better quarantine for two weeks and isolate for 10 days if you're going to do that then allow people the ability when you're living day to day on your income to provide that income. That is imperative. Otherwise, you're just like saying something so mean to people. You're saying do it and not giving people the provision to do it. It's so harsh. I see. So, yeah, I do. And I actually, it was very interesting because in the city of San Francisco, they started it. And then when they didn't continue it, the Latino community in the, in the mission was so mad. They were like, what is what? I'm not going to test. Why would you make me test? First, put everything properly into play. Yes. Like it was. I mean, there was times where it was. Dr. Gandhi, it's been a pleasure to talk with you. I mean, if I were to distill the themes of your conversation, I mean, it's abundantly clear your concern for and compassion with the most vulnerable people, uh, which shows every day in your clinic, it shows uh, abundantly in this conversation. And that's really been the blind spot, I think, in this whole response. Um, and your three-point strategy uh, you know, compassionate messaging that gets things done to people actually wear these uh, masks, um, to uh, putting money in the right place, um, and to doing the sorts of things we can do and reopening places we need to reopen. Uh, I mean, it's perfectly sensible. Um, you're, I, do, I don't think you're going to get any hate mail for this because unlike on Twitter, people don't listen to podcasts this long to get angry. <laughs> they really don't. They, they just give up. They, the Twitter also is good for people with short attention spans. They can criticize something they read. And then they can sign out. And they can sign out. It's yeah. so rude. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, good. Then no one will listen to the end so I can say whatever I want. But thank you very much. It was great to speak to you. This was a very, very enjoyable and intelligent discourse on the entire problem. Thanks for coming. I'm back in plenary session, joined via Zoom by Dr. Sven Olsen. And this is Journal Club with a fellow... Wait a second, not a fellow what? anymore. An Take assistant to the professor. Assistant to the professor, Sven Olsen. I, you could have been forgiven. I mean, I, I honestly would have forgotten and maybe said that myself. It's been such a short time. Such a short time. You're a fellow no longer. So the disrespect, it's got to end here and now. Uh, <laughs> I have to treat you as a fellow attending. So now you're living your life of Zoom and Uber Eats. Is that an accurate right. characterization? Yeah, uh, pretty much. I uh, try to cook, cook 
cook a good meal at least once or twice a week. Mm -hmm. I, I've allowed myself, the biggest allowance I've given myself since making an attending salary is shopping at Zupans more often. Zupans, that's, that's, that's the big leagues. Uh, you it know, is. even as an attending, I didn't shop that often at Zupans. Well, for listeners who don't know, Zup I'm not sure how widespread Zupans is, but it's kind of like a Whole Foods-esque, uh, more expensive brand. I think like produce. a bag of gummy bears there is like nine dollars. <laughs> I mostly go. I mostly go for the produce. They've got uh, their produce is unmatched. So yeah, I guess they have they have good produce. Um, yeah, life life's going on, and I'm actually on service for the first time as an attending these next two weeks. So that's been a fun a fun distraction. Um, I have a stacked team of residents and fellows and students, so it's been a great time. Well, you're going to do well. You remember you were an attending when I was an attending. Remember, you we were attendings together. You were a fellow, of course, but you ran the team, and I just shadowed you. Pretending, yeah. You know, honestly, that was the one of the best things I did in my last year of fellowship. And you know, for any fellows who are listening and have some free time to design their, you know, their their fellowship the last year of it, I'd recommend it. It was really good to sort of get an opportunity to have a safety net with being charged. Yeah, I actually think it's good too. Although after I, I watched some of your decision making, I'd glug, glug, glug some Pepto-Bismol and say, oh, I hope it goes out. No, 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 no. <laughs> I actually, I don't think I ever disagree with you because I think when it comes to classical hematology, you know your things, you know your facts. I try to. Oncology, that's another story. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> well, I was recently, you know, we do a we do a joint tumor board yeah. for our fellows where yeah. they can present any sort of case. And, yeah. you know, recently listened in as an attending and a breast, a triple positive breast cancer case came up and I was already sort of racking my brain like, huh, what do we do with that again? Yeah, you're nervous. Well, <laughs> that's a that's a widely attended conference. And um, and you and as you and I both know, there's some people there who 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 act as if they know all the answers <laughs> well i mean it's it's no it's no lie that i think all doctors have a, a healthy ego to some extent and, no. good so you're you're comfortable admitting that that some people think they know the answer but they may not know the answer well, I'm sure I'm guilty of the same, you know. Well, I'm not guilty yeah. of that. I deny yeah, that. Course, when I don't not. know the answer, I'm the first to say I don't know. And then ask a lot of questions that reveal that many other people who say they know also don't know. So uh -huh. that's my style. But yeah. You're innocent. I'm innocent of, uh, certainly, certainly, the one thing I am innocent of is claiming I know the right answer when, when I don't know the right answer. That's, that's, that's the one thing I don't think, I, I, that's not my fault. I have many faults, but not that one. Um, okay. okay, let's talk about this paper. This was a paper yeah. you sent me, and you know what? I got excited when I, I saw the paper. I'll tell you why. This is a paper, a randomized control trial, MDS, iron chelation, and it's published in the Annals of Internal Medicine. I said, how did I miss this study? It must be a good study. And I was me like, too. this- I thought the same thing. Yeah. How did I miss it? It must be good. And then I say, and Sven Olsen says, we should do it for the podcast. So I was really kind of like, boy, okay. And then I read it. And then I had a lot of things I didn't like about it. <laughs> so anyway, we're going to talk about it. Why don't we? Why don't you give us some background here? Um, yeah, MDS is not usually something that falls in your lap. Is that fair to say? You have, there are people at OHSU do MDS. Yeah, I'd say that you know we we see a lot of consults for cytopenias, and so it eventually gets to that point where that's the diagnosis. Yeah. But and if depending on the severity and the IPSS risk category, we sometimes manage them. But most of the time, you're right; they go to the malignant hematology group. And 
when those patients go to the malignant hematology group, they, of course, get a bone marrow biopsy at some point. NGS. <laughs> NGS. Yep. All to, to put them back on observation, to wait and see what the counts do uh, until the counts really get to the point where they have to be transfusion supported. And then you start thinking about other things. Um, I guess, of course, there's the, there's the young group of people that you think about taking them to to transplant. But to be honest, you know, MDS tends to be a disease of the elderly. It tends to be a disease where you're thinking about palliative and not curative options, fair to say. And I, I would, yeah, and I would say that it's, you know, with the advent of CHIP and CCUS and ICUS and all these other categories, we're coming upon more and more people that, you know, they're younger and they get evaluated for a cytopenia and the workup is totally unremarkable and then you're left with okay well i could just sequence their you know peripheral blood yeah and look for a mutation and then you find one and then you have to go down that rabbit hole so that's the other kind of way sometimes it gets diagnosed so why don't you talk about the people in this study so this is looking at a particular ipss uh mds category people who are transfusion dependent tell us about this population they're going after well, before we do that, I kind of want to comment on how I even arrived at this because, um, okay. you know, I'm studying for boards right now, hmm. uh, my hematology boards. And, Good luck. What about oncology? Uh, I'm not doing that this year, and that's entirely my own fault because I missed the deadline for applying. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, I have no doubt you're going to do well on heme boards. It's the oncology <laughs> one that I wanted to razz you about. Okay. All right. No, so, yeah, oncology yeah. only or heme only. Well, so I was doing board review questions from a, I won't name the, the source, but, um, you know, I was surprised to see a que actually a couple of questions come up on this exact topic on chelation and MDS. Mm -hmm. And I kind of was surprised because typically board review questions and even sample ones uh, will touch on like big randomized trials and, you know, try to have really robust data to back them. Uh, but this one was asking, you know, if you give chelation to this patient with MDS, what's the expected outcome? Mm. Uh, and I, I got the question right, uh, but only because I sort of had the thought in the back of my mind that I'd never seen a randomized trial of this. Yes. Uh, so then I looked and I found this one and I was like, how did I miss this? This mm. was done this year. And as you said, it was in a big journal. Mm -hmm. A reputable journal, and mm -hmm. it was. Uh, but a uh, reputable journal that doesn't publish a lot of MDS studies. Let's be honest. When was the last time you actually looked at an Annals of Internal Medicine article for for heme or onc? Well, they, I mean, they have published stuff in antiphospholipid syndrome in the last year. I guess that's true. Uh, the, so they had, yeah, I believe, some, some uh, stuff. the, the Rivaroxaban trials, I think. Uh, but yeah, so it's it's rare. You're right. Uh, but yeah, I was surprised to see it there. I thought, why is that here, and why has nobody talked about it? You know, I gotten to Twitter more often recently, and I didn't see anyone. Sphematologist. At Sphematologist. There you go. So I did some digging, and you know, I, I came across a lot of excellent sort of editorials in the last decade that have, and I encourage people to read these, um, uh, in particular one by uh, David Steensma that was published in Leukemia Research in 2009. Friend of the show, David Steensma. Friend of the show. Yeah. Really excellent editorial. As, um, as always are. Yeah. Yeah. And it, 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 it basically lays out why this is such a controversy. Um, and so leading then up to this paper. So the gist is basically that, you know. Uh, Wait, but one last question. In the, in the board review question you did, was this paper cited in the answer? No. Okay. This was okay. too, I think this was too new. Uh, they referenced a... 2013 paper in the Annals of Hematology. But it had to have been garbage. There's no random, that's not a randomized trial. What is that? Some garbage study. 
No, this was a, um, let me, let me check really quick. I believe it was a single arm, single arm study of, uh, Defarazorox, um, which at that point was kind of the, uh, the, the oral equivalent, uh, for chelation. It's been, it had been approved about a decade earlier, but yeah. So they referenced that and the, essentially the answer to the question was you chelate someone and it'll reduce their ferritin and that's about it. Right. Well, yeah, I, I don't think a single arm could show anything other than that. I see. But it was still the answer to the question to give them the drug or it just said, what would it do if you did it? What would it do? So if it did, did not, I see. it did not conclude that this is something you should do. I but see. I was That's good to note. That's that good question. to note. Okay. And, they, and that was a question based on a single arm trial. So I see. But the, the gist of it is, um, you know, in thalassemia is where we really have a lot of data on population. But I was surprised. Non-randomized. Even there, yeah, it's all non-randomized in yeah. retrospective. Yeah. Um, and so in there, there's a lot of sort of, uh, you know, guidelines that'll say there's a survival benefit. But if you really dig down, it's not so clear that it's, you know, it's, compared to placebo. It, it's comparing kids, you know, kids and young adults with thalassemia who were receiving care at places where doctors were cognizant of iron and, and giving them these chelators versus kids and young adults with thalassemia who were receiving care in places where they were not even cognizant of the iron. So that what does that say about the socioeconomics of the people, the, 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 the patients, and, and then the quality of the care overall? I mean, it's just a me I mean, these kind of retrospective things are messy. They're messy because um, th every intervention looks good because places that are geared to cater to wealthy people with the condition offer lots of services. So ergo, those things are all kind of bundled together. Right. So even there, yeah. uh, not really a, a term randomized control trial that says this is for sure a survival benefit. I think there's plenty of, you know, signs that it can reduce cardiac iron, liver iron and reduce your ferritin. Um, but the other complicating thing is that these drugs are both expensive yes. and have lots of side effects. They're a bitter pill, a bitter pill. Okay. So x is our uh, Defrazerox is the uh oral drug that you know can cost like five thousand a month mm. and as uh dr steensma notes in his editorial that's uh ends up being over the median household income of a lot of americans at least it was back in 2009 so that's very interesting um he so wrote that editorial in 2009 mm -hmm. Oh, that's he's ahead of me on that. You know, we like to compare these drugs to median household income in our Nature Reviews paper, but I, it looks again, once again, Steensma has beaten me to the punch. <laughs> David Steensma. Okay. So that's the background, and so then you come to MDS. Yeah, talk about MDS. No, no really prospective data, all either single arm or retrospective. Um, and the other kind of interesting thing is, you know, MDS patients are a wholly different population, right? Yeah. They're not children. They, uh, you know, upon diagnosis, tend to live quite a bit mm -hmm. shorter lives. Mm -hmm. um, they have such a variable variability in how they present and their genetics. Um, and that doesn't even talk about the, you know, how we measure ferritin and the complications of that and uh, whether it really correlates with any outcomes either. So, yeah, I think. But one thing that struck me in the introduction, the authors were like, um, you know, in thalassemia, we know for sure this is good because thalassemia patients are young and can take chelation. In MDS, we don't know for sure. And there's doubt because they're older and frailer often. 
And one of the things I thought was, I agree with you about the second part that we don't know for sure in MDS, but I guess if we're perfectly honest, we also don't know for sure that it's a, it's a magic thing in thalassemia as well. Um, right. Yeah. But I know. sort of see it like I, I sort of started thinking about like uh, a phlebotomy for hemochromatosis. Yeah. Um, where there's really never been a randomized trial there either uh, that, you know, robustly shows a, a, uh, a survival benefit. Um, so it's sort of a thing that's that's. One of those things that maybe is due for a reversal. <laughs> oh well, I don't know. But let's talk about. But the, but the other example is P. Vera. In P. Vera, there are randomized trials for for hemoglobin targets. Are there not? Sure. But even then, you know, there's been question about whether Secondary. the phlebotomy was really the help or whether it was the cytoreduction. reduction. That okay. That's fair too with P. Vera. You don't know which of the di- you know that requires testing. Um, but of course, secondary polycythemia, people are phlebotomizing those patients all the time. How's Correct. the data yeah. for that? It happens occasionally. We do get consults for that. And um, yeah, there's really an absence of data there too. So I guess, I guess. So we can, well, let's come to this paper. Let's talk this paper. Yeah, let's come to this paper. So uh, this was a paper by Emmanuel Angelucci, Angelucci et al. Uh, and it was on behalf of the Telesto study investigators. So this is a Telesto trial. Uh, and it's called Iron Chelation in Transfusion-Dependent Patients with Low to Intermediate One-Risk Myelodysplastic Syndromes, a Randomized Trial. And essentially what they did here is they took patients who had a serum ferritin, had MDS, and it was IPSS, lower intermediate risk. Okay. They had a ferritin that was above 2,247. And I don't know why they, how they picked that number, to be honest. Um, it seems like an oddly specific number, but it is generally kind of above the threshold that even in thalassemia you'd consider chelation, which is usually somewhere above 1,000 or 1,500 or something. But why is it 2,247? Yeah, I, I agree. I, I don't know for sure. Uh, I'd have to really dig through the, the protocol maybe, but is that, I, I couldn't. Wait a second. Isn't that Judgment Day in Terminator or no? no. <laughs> <laughs> what the hell is this? It's a very specific number. Is it, is it not? Yeah, yeah. So you don't have um, an answer for this question. You're just going to let it go. I don't have an answer to that. All right, question. listeners of plenary session. If somebody can tell me why it's 2,247, I will buy you a coffee someday when we meet in person. So I need to know the answer in the future. Okay. All right. Go on. Can you do like Uber Eats from afar and like Uber Eats a coffee? Uber Eats. This I, 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 Uber Eats is a sore spot for me. You're going to learn on another plenary session where I rant about it. But go on. Go on. Okay. Uh, so they had to have that ferritin. Uh, they had to have um, prior receipt of 15 to 75 units of red cells. In what um, period of time? Within, uh, I don't really say, with an anticipation to be transfused with at least eight units annually during the study. I see. I see. So it's somebody who's requiring blood. But why are they putting an upper bound on it? So you can't have more than 75 units in your life? Yeah. And again, I'm not sure. 75 units is a lot, but yeah, I'm but, sure the, but the, those the people who are the most dependent, you know, that's what you're getting up into those ballparks. Yeah, right, right. Okay, and they had an ECOG status of zero to two. Oh, okay, so uh, the so the the low risk MDS patient with a good ECOG who right. has a ferritin of 2,247.2145. No, I'm just kidding. Not the decimal point. They're not getting that. Okay, uh, and 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 having had some receipt of transfusion products. Okay, go on. And then there's a bunch of exclusion criteria. So basically, they couldn't have any of the manifestations of iron overload. And that's things like 
uh, a low left ventricular ejection fraction of under 50%. They couldn't have any uh, transaminitis above a certain threshold. They couldn't have had a, um, any pre-existing cirrhosis, anything like that. Yeah. Um, because that was then uh, part of their endpoint that they were looking at. Yeah. And what they did here is they uh, randomized people with two to one to get Defirazirox, which again is the oral drug by Novartis that yeah. costs, you know, $20,000 a year, oh, $30,000 okay. a year. Okay. By cancer uh, drug standards, that's cheap, but for, true. but for classical hematologists, that's not, that's not expensive. Yeah. Uh, so two to one to that or placebo. Uh, it was double blind from what I can tell. Um, and they basically treated them, um, for a maximum of about three years, I believe, from the date the last patient was enrolled. Um, and they gave them a pretty standard dose of this drug. And their primary endpoint then ended up being uh, EFS, event-free survival, uh, defined as the time from randomization to the first documented or confirmed non-fatal event or death, whichever occurred first. And those were then included uh, Evidence on an echo of cardiac dysfunction. Yes, which is like a 15% deterioration of EF or something like that. Yeah, okay. uh, liver function impairment, cirrhosis, or transformation to AML. Okay. Now, they had planned to make this a superiority trial, phase three trial, and then they didn't get enough recruitment, so they downgraded it to a phase two. And that was also then, I think, partly due to uh, Defirazirox, they claimed became the standard of care in a lot of places. And so it was no longer easy to recruit people to placebo. Apparently. Yeah, so now that was the part of the paper where I got angry. That was, I, that was <laughs> Yeah, they said, we're going to recruit 630 people for a phase three randomized control trial that had a certain amount of, I forget, it was 90% or 85% power to detect a 30% reduction in EFS. And then because... Our drug is the standard of care in many countries around the world, which, by the way, who, who said that's true? Who says that that is the case? I have never heard that, that it's the yeah. standard of care. Get the, I mean, beat it, this it out. Became, it became FDA approved for that reason. It is FDA approved for iron overload associated with including MDS, uh, but I don't know about standard of care. It's not that, yeah, I was like, FDA approved, that's, a, that's the lowest bar. But certainly around the world, standard of care around the world, uh, Get the fuck out of here. Get standard of care around the world. It's not standard of care around the world. I, I doubt it. I, I guarantee you. I mean, I wish somebody would do a survey of like you pick 10,000 people with MDS, uh, low risk around the world who are getting transfusions and see what percent have gotten this drug. There, I highly doubt it is that high. Uh, that's one, like just as a practical, it's not standard of care. And two, the evidence to support it being standard of care is, 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 it would be non-existent. I mean, it's, it's, yeah, it's trivial. Yeah. Okay, but that's what they claimed. And so then they ultimately recruit like 200 at some. Correct. Yeah. And, so, and they aborted the, the primary endpoint. They call it that um, they, they no longer have power to detect any difference. They are they're really looking at, uh, they called it something very vague or like clinical efficacy or like clinical benefit or something. Yeah, yeah. Which I think is a, just uh, sort of a descriptive term, but okay, go on. Now, there's an important paragraph in here among many that uh, I want to point out. So the role of the funding source funded by Novartis mm -hmm. Uh, Novartis contributed to the study design, data collection, data analysis, data interpretation, writing of the report, mm -hmm. and decision to submit for publication. Mm, interesting. Uh, funder, oh, oh, here's the here's my favorite part that I look for most closely yes, ever since medical writer. Uh, first time on your on your podcast. The funder also paid for the services of a professional medical writer. Yes, who provided editorial assistance in refining the draft manuscript. 
And even funnier than that, I guess this was actually very funny to me. I don't know if it's supposed to be funny, but the medical writer apparently came from a group called Mudskipper. Uh, what was it called? Mudskipper. Had yeah. you heard of this before? Yeah, I've seen this Mudskipper around. Yeah, I've heard them. Go to their website. I encourage no, I you to go gone. to their website because it's really amusing. They start talking about amphibians and like if you want to learn more about actual amphibians, here's a link. And then they are like, oh, by the way, here's what we actually do. Shut up. <laughs> yes, yes. So it's really funny. And I actually, I wasn't really clear what they did based on their website until I kind of had to look for it for a few minutes. So anyway, that's just a funny aside. Our reputation for excellence is built on the perfect ecosystem of scientific expertise, strategic acumen, combined with a splash of creative flair. We never aim to lose sight of the fact that we are also involved in developing marketing of new and effective medications to treat serious conditions, nor do we forget the needs of the patient and the caregiver. Well, well, well. As far as I can tell, the only thing they're really good at is taking trials that should be written in a very negative way and writing them in a very positive way. And that's what I see here. I I, uh, give, I give them a lot of credit for how whoever designed their website. That's a flashy website. I like the amphibian uh, focus of it. Yeah, I like. I, I mean, the website looks good. I'm sure. I'm sure they have the funds to have a good looking website. And I. Uh, I uh I hate I hate I hate I hate these these companies and services. Um and uh well at the end of this I'm going to tell you what I think of this paper. Um okay. and uh but but I do think it's interesting. You're pointing out many interesting things. One, let me ask you this question. If they had run this trial with a 630 enrollment and they only got 212 and the results showed that um their drug had a higher rate of death or a higher rate of EFS than the control arm, would they publish it? Uh, well, not, not, probably not if Novartis, if it specifically says decision to submit yes, report. Yes, that's what I think. Yes. <laughs> there can, it, it, so in other words, one of the reasons that go into that decision is whether or not it's flattering. Um, and if he, and you have a great reason not to publish it, which is you can say, well, you can't hang your hat on our drug doing worse than control arm. If, if that were the case, because we didn't even reach the power. Our trial could be confounded by other variables because, you know, we didn't even have the power that we, we sought to have. And so I think if it had not gone the direction it happened to go, they wouldn't have even sent it in. That's my guess. I, I don't know that to be true, but I strongly suspect that that's true. I think it's also important to point out that um, the uh, disclosures in the bottom of the paper, you know, the primary author... Uh, does report personal fees from Novartis, personal fees from uh, a lot of different companies. I think several of the primary authors have personal fees from Novartis, so that is worth pointing out too. Mm -hmm. Of course, of course, the hallmark of success is personal fees from lots of companies. They all um, cancel each other out, Sven Olsen. They cancel each other out. <laughs> is that how that works? That's how it works. So let's just jump to the uh oh one more thing i want to point out you know okay. they, they mentioned that uh in the discussion and the results that there was crossover although in the methods i don't see any discussion of how that was kind of organized or allowed so yeah i think uh, maybe they mean that some people happen to use this product um by their own volition but the crossover wasn't it, it, it certainly wasn't pre-specified in the protocol or they didn't mandate right right yeah so yeah, so the the conclusions they got here are, you know, they had um, 225 patients enrolled and randomly assigned, 149 in the uh, experimental arm and 76 in the placebo. They do mention that the uh, trial groups were overall fairly balanced, but then they themselves point out in their discussion that 
you know, there was a disproportionate number of people with higher blast counts in the placebo arm. Uh, there were really differential follow-ups, um, and they acknowledged the crossover may have contributed to some of their results. So, um, yeah, I found several imbalances. So one imbalance was the control arm had people with higher blasts. Um, let me pull up the paper. So bone marrow blasts in the placebo group over 5% was 13%. And in the experimental group, it was 6%. That's a pretty stark difference. Yeah, that one group is blasting off. Hold on, let me pull the one, the ones I saw that jumped out at me. Okay, here it is. Um, so the things that jumped out at me as sort of uh, discrepant table one findings were one, just the number of transfusions they had gotten prior to randomization. The, uh, the, the intervention group is getting far fewer packed RBCs, way more platelets, and uh, about the same whole blood. So just kind of a totally different sort of um, cytopenia kind of state. Um, yeah. they, then the other thing that jumped out at me was what you're pointing out, which was the blast. They have more people, twice as many people with 5% or more blasts in the control arm than the placebo arm. And these are all, you know, many people always say like, why do we even have table ones? And why do we put P values there? And the answer is in an adequately powered well-done randomized controlled trial, there is no point or logic to a p-value in table one. Um, you're balancing um, the, the therapeutic outcome distributions in the two groups. Any imbalance in table one is a chance imbalance. You've randomized them. That's true here too. But here, these the fact that they're falling so far short of their target enrollment, it's one-third target enrollment, a severely mm -hmm. underpowered study. Um, these imbalances in such a trial uh, can actually I take on um, key importance. Um, and 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 underpowered phase two trials are both more more likely to reach false negative as well as more likely to reach false positive results when they do find results. Um, and those results are more likely to be exaggerated. So I think yeah. there's a lot of problems. A lot of problems. Yeah. So I mean, and those differences don't necessarily all kind of think that, that the results are skewed one way or another. I think they could kind of pull the pull the results both ways, but. Uh, yeah, bottom line, there were pretty notable differences there, I think. Um, and there's also, you know, they also mentioned other, you know, uh, MDS targeted therapies that patients were on. And, you know, there was like three times as many people on lenalidomide in one versus the other. And um, I think that was the one that stuck out to me the most. Hmm. Which uh, group had the more len? Uh, Len was more often in the experimental arm. Okay, that's interesting. Uh, Len, of course, is only really useful in 5Q minus MDS, and every other type of MDS is not that useful. And if you have 5Q minus and a bunch of other stuff, it's not that useful, although it doesn't stop people from trying. Yeah. Okay, go on. So their, their primary finding they got here was event-free survival was indeed lower. Or, sorry, event-free survival is indeed better with Deferazerox sure. rather than placebo. So, uh... So they say events happened in 41% of people in Defrazerox group and 48% roughly in the placebo group. And so they calculated a hazard ratio of 0. 0.64. 0.64. But look at the curve in figure two. This is what also blows me away. For the first four or five months you're on therapy, there's no difference between the 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 experimental drug and placebo. Then right. from about six months to 18 months. You've got a sweet spot. You're doing really well on their drug. 
Then, of course, the curves touch right after, right? Oh, no, they don't quite touch. But around oh. two years, they're getting oh so close. They're about the same. But then from two to four years, they pull ahead. This is a very interesting curve. And, and there's something similar in the, um, in the overall survival curve, which, was, uh, which is way below um, where, oh, no, I guess the overall survival curves are pretty much overlapping. Um, so I guess I would say, am I convinced that, you know, there's anything different here? Besides the play of chance, no. But did they get a hazard ratio and a confidence interval that doesn't cross one? Yeah. So they're happy to point that out to everybody. Yeah. I mean, I think uh, then you, the one I care about, and I think most people would, is the overall survival. This was the secondary endpoint. Yeah. So, uh, you know, take that with a grain of salt. But in that case, it was, I believe, non-statistically significantly better with the experimental arm. But um, so that... I, I guess I'd say I'm I'm happy that isn't the case that this now would be a, a source of people, you know, really jumping to chelation therapy if that had been statistically significant, uh, because there are problems with this trial. So, any any other thoughts on this study? Well, um, You've I think this, this hasn't really changed my hasn't really changed my practice. Um, you know, honestly, I haven't seen all that many patients who I've even had to think about this in um, because, you know, the people that I've tended to see in fellowship were a lot of the higher risk patients where their, unfortunately, their overall survival or their, their prognosis was such that chelation probably wasn't going to be the thing that, you know, really saved their lives. Yeah. Preventing anything, and this so, study notably they exclude those people because they know that the survival is so limited. By the time the X jade really lowers the ferritin, um, you know it's probably going to be too late to do to have any right. impact. Right. So I think I mean it, they they targeted the right population where they're going to live long enough that you might see a difference. But um, yeah, this this hasn't really changed my thinking, and I also. You know, there's not really any guidelines or any guidance on when you'd even check to see if uh, they have actual organ damage or organ involvement with iron. So in thalassemia, there's some rough guidelines on when you do like a T2 star MRI, but here there really isn't isn't much of that. Um, and studies have shown kind of variable rates of that even happening in MDS transfused patients. So, um, you know, that'd be what I would be most concerned about and justifying chelation. Now, interestingly, about a month ago, I read, well, after I'd read this paper, I made a Twitter poll mm -hmm. uh, asking yes. you know, yes. uh, the Twitterverse what they would do in this scenario. So I said, in a patient who are, you know, how or do you ever chelate MDS patients and what's your justification for it? And I said, you know, in Twitter, of course, has to limit my characters, but I said, do you do it based on a ferritin that's too high? Do you do it based on a T2 star MRI that shows, you know, cardiac or liver iron? Or do you never do it? And honestly, it was very evenly split. It was like a third in each category, which was really fascinating, um, especially in the context of a board review question asking this and kind of expecting a definitive answer, you know? I see. Now, let me ask you this. I'm looking at the XJade label right now. I don't see it has a approval for MDS. Where do you see that? Well, let me look. I think um, they don't necessarily specify the cause i see yeah they do say x-jade is an iron chelator indicated for the treatment of chronic iron overload due to a transfusion in patients two years or older 1.1 1. 1. Right. that's a huge indication right so it's not specific so um, that's what you're that's what you're hanging your hat on yeah well i'm not hanging my hat on anything i see but, but that's what that's <laughs> what that's what they're saying 
But that's what, yeah, yeah, exactly. So let me look this up. I see. In that study that they're citing, okay, transfusional iron overload, it was people with beta thal and transfusional hemosiderosis. Okay, of course. Yeah, that's a different, different beast. Now, I, I do want to, you know, despite there being some problems with this paper, I do want to say they did, they were somewhat measured in their discussion and they did acknowledge, you know, the differences in patient populations and the fact that that could have affected things and the fact that, they had to reduce their sample size and everything. So I do want to give them some credit that, you know, they 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 acknowledge some of the limitations of this appropriately. You're I a nice you're they're... a nice you're a nice person. That's why I always like you, Sven Olson. <laughs> I'm not I'm not nice, and I'm gonna tell you what I think about this study. Okay, take it away. Okay, well here's what I think. Okay, let me start with the power calculation. This will put it all in perspective. Telesto was designed as a phase three trial with a target sample size of 630 patients, able to detect a 31% reduction in EFS hazard rate with the treatment group compared to the placebo group with a power of 80% power with a one-sided 2.5% significance level. Okay, to reject the null hypothesis. Okay, so so that's worth noting at the outset that they sought to get something close to a, a 0.69, 0.7 kind of hazard ratio. And what was the hazard ratio they actually observed? 0.64, right, Sven? Lower than yep. what they sought. Okay, they only had 80% power to do that. You know, this is not, this is not 90% power plus. I was wrong about that earlier. And then what they actually got was 210 patients. And so they say, quote, as such, the study was underpowered to test our initial hypothesis. And then they say, efficacy analyses were based on all data collected. So they call it an efficacy analysis. But it's not really an efficacy analysis. I want to say it is not even a phase two study because even phase two studies have primary endpoints that they're powered for. I don't see that they're powered for anything. It is a failed phase three study that wouldn't have been published if it found anything other than what it happened to find, which is a drift in EFS that favored the arm they wanted it to favor. Uh, and, and that drift is also sort of nonsensical because look at the curves in figure two. They drift apart, tut, almost near touch, then drift apart again. So that gives an overall hazard ratio that they like, but it actually is makes no sense biologically. It, it seems to be nothing more than the play of chance. The OS, I think, again, underpowered. They're shown basically nothing in the OS. Um, let me give you an example. The Lartruvo, you know, that's that olaritumumab, um, Eli Lilly drug that was approved based on a large OS benefit in underpowered phase two. The phase three trial is stone cold negative. So this data... I think it wouldn't even meet the level of Lartruvo's initial study because it wasn't even designed as a phase two study. It's a failed phase three study. So I guess the only way I would write this study is to say Telesto is a failed phase three study. Telesto was unable to address either benefit or harm to the primary endpoint. Telesto can only tell you about the adverse events and safety profile of this medication, which, you know, is worse than placebo. That's for sure. But then again, you didn't need to know that. You already knew that at the outset. Here's how they write discussion. Quote, Telesto was the first prospective placebo-controlled randomized study to evaluate the clinical benefit of ICT in iron-overloaded patients with lower intermediate risk MDS. See, that's technically inaccurate because it is incapable of evaluating the clinical benefit because <laughs> it didn't meet the target. So it wasn't the first prospective. It was the first failed placebo-controlled randomized study that was unable to tell us anything. Next sentence. The study was designed as a phase three trial, but slow enrollment prompted a reduction in patient recruitment. Consequently, confirmatory superiority testing was no longer considered, and the objective of the study was amended to focus on assessing clinical benefit by evaluation of treatment effect. But they contradict themselves because they are reporting the hazard ratio as if it's significant, and they're proudly reporting it. 
Next sentence, quote, nonetheless, patients who were randomized to receive X-Jade experienced a clinically meaningful 36% reduction in the hazard ratio of the event compared with the primary composite endpoint of EFS. That is, exceeds the power if it had been three times as big, almost surely represents a spurious result. Um, I think this is uh, 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 garbage. And here's what they write at the end. Quote, despite these limitations, the Telesto trial supports the clinical benefit of ICT. Uh, it doesn't. It doesn't support it. It is a neutral study that nothing, no one should read anything into. On the basis of these results, ICT may be considered a therapeutic option for these patients. Incorrect. That's wrong as well. I think that this study is, is, is absolute garbage, shouldn't have been published, certainly shouldn't have been published in this journal. And I have a lot of questions why this journal is publishing this study because uh, it doesn't make sense to me. There, this is a study that would have been vanished. It would have been ghosted. So, uh, we should call this segment Good Cop, Bad Cop. Good Cop, Bad Cop. Well, I mean, I guess I would say, I think it's, I, I guess I would say, I, I started reading it, I was more optimistic, but then as I was reading it, I was like, this is a useless study. But it's also useless, I mean, how, the other thing about it is, like, my condemnation of this study is something that not a lot of doctors would condemn it for because doctors I don't think think about power the way I think about power I think most people see randomized trial blinded good good you didn't get what you wanted accrual that's not so bad compromise compromise they don't realize that that is hugely bad randomized good you didn't get you didn't get the sample size you wanted you got a third of it but you got a benefit bigger than what you were powered to find it stinks of spurious it stinks of spurious the way the curves look it stinks of random chance there's imbalances in blast counts that wouldn't have happened if they cranked up the sample size i suspect um it's not a stratification factor but they wouldn't have had those imbalances stinks it's it smells like a rotting a fucking it's it just smells like a rotting study that they just dress up put some put some mass and no, i don't know what i mean i need to a good analogy i sincerely i mean my my thing is i hope that uh there's not a board review question in the future that cites this study oh it will no yeah it's a good question reduce their event rate of cardiac dysfunction and such you know yeah is that possible but. Yeah, so I guess I would say that you're kind of alluding to a bigger problem in in this field, which is, you know, when so many of the heme and onc docs are on the take, as Jerome Cassirer, the former editor of New England Journal, would say, or conflicted, as I would say, or uh, sellout, as others have said, or other words that I can't even say, when so many people are like that and they write all the questions um, and the professional organizations that write the exams are receiving sizable funding from industry. The concern that the questions are going to reflect what the industry's priorities are is a real question. It's really problematic. I just got a text message from another oncologist. You know, these days people know me for my views on these issues who said that, you know, do you really think that some people are paying to get these questions put in? I'm studying for my 10 year boards. And I was like, well, I don't think they're paying for it, but I think that um, it's not that dissimilar. I guess the bottom line is, you, I mean, you put it well, you're not going to use X-Jade in this popular, in, in, in the MDS patients you see. I think I would be reluctant to use it in MDS patients at all, even this population. There's no clear proof they live longer, live better, in my mind. Um, the annals of internal medicine, they need to do some, they need to, I need to, I have some tough questions for them. They, they're very quiet about MDS. I never see anything in that journal about MDS. Very quiet. And then... An MDS paper, but it's like the worst MDS paper ever. So what's going on? <laughs> All right, why are they so? The only time you want to get in the MDS business is the worst MDS study. I have questions. 
questions. Well, your, your sentiments were shared by uh, a couple of my mentors here oh, at really? OHSU, so you're not alone, and I suspect uh, a lot of people share that view too. But again, I was just surprised that you know this kind of flew under the radar months yeah, ago. Yeah, it did fly. It was under my radar. Well, I'm glad you pointed out Sven Olsen. We did good cop, bad cop. That's good. It's good to have <laughs> good cop, bad cop. And um, we will have to have you back again for another journal club with a f- assistant professor. Oh, journal that was club. Intense. I can tell with an assistant with an assistant professor. But you've you earned it. Huh? <laughs> Do you have to point out the assistant professor? You could just you could just say faculty. Faculty right? member. Okay, I'll say. <laughs> But you know what? I think you might someday you'll wish you were an assistant professor again, because when you go from assistant to associate, as I have, um, you lose your K award eligibility. You lose your eligibility for a lot of grants and and they don't pay you like anything more than what you were making before. So you're like, why did I give that up for no amount of money? Um, well, it's yeah. on my it's on my radar. But right now I'm just getting acclimated and I'm loving it. It's really fun. You, you love know, being an attending. Yeah, yeah, it's really good. As, as fun as it can be in this weird climate and not being able to see people all the time. And But yeah, it's it feels good to finally be in the spot I want to be and see things I want to see, and it's cool. Well, they're lucky to get you there at OHSU. I know you had, you had good options on lots of places, and they're lucky to have snagged you. Um, oh, and uh, I think also you're a, you're an excellent teacher. I have, uh, I, uh, I've never been fully honest, but of course, uh, every time I've attended with you, uh, I actually learn a lot. I learned things that I thought I knew, but I didn't quite know exactly. Um, you, uh, you put it a lot, you put things really nicely. There's some things, you know, in, 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 in classical hematology that we, I think many of us struggle with like Von Willebrand's trying to keep them all straight in your mind kind of thing. Um, but you know, you gave a couple lectures on that. I was like, Oh, you should give a lecture on this, but this really, cause I wanted to learn it. Uh, and, and you did a really good job. So I think, uh, the students are really going to enjoy. And then the other thing is your decision-making is really good. I mean, way beyond you were already an assistant professor when I was working with you. You just, we just had to call you fellow. Um, and I never, I don't think I ever disagreed with your management choices. They're always right. So I think for me, I mean, just to talk a little bit about, when I was in your shoes, it was 2015, and people didn't tell me what I found to be true, which was the biggest challenge is you you don't believe you know the answer. You know the answer, you know what to do, but you've never been in a situation where the buck stops with you. And so there's this huge psychological barrier where it's almost a bit, it can be paralyzing. You're in clinic and you're like, oh, I should get a PET scan or I should order this drug or I shouldn't get a scan. Uh, here's why, but wait, does... Dr. So-and-so agree and there's no yeah, Dr. So-and-so in the back of your mind you go to tumor board two years ago and you think oh someone would have shouted at me for doing that maybe I shouldn't <laughs> <laughs> yeah sometimes you have your you have those doubts but then I think it, it almost takes a year or two years I find before the doubts really go away and you actually really feel like an attending but I'm glad I, maybe it'll go faster for you because because well you, you, yeah yeah, I, I would say there's definitely a lot of times I've already encountered where, you know, when I was a fellow and uh, I knew, you know, even if it was subconsciously, I knew that if I said something, I suggested something and it was stupid, then it didn't matter because it'd be caught. Yes. Whereas yes. now, you, yes. know, you know, I said something in the past and I was, uh, you know, I might have been sure about it. Uh, now when you're in attending, all of a sudden you're like, but wait, there's like a 1% chance I'm not right about this. <laughs> and that means I, I probably shouldn't just do it. I and know. that's hard. Yeah, so it's hard. It, yeah, it's just like confidence level. So Dr. Sven Olsen, pleasure to have you here. You've been listening to Season 3 of Plenary Session. Plenary Session is produced by Kiana Klausner. 
Music by Ian Straley and Audrey Tran. The views expressed on Plenary Session are those of whoever said it and no one else. Plenary Session is not medical advice. Follow us on Twitter at plenary underscore session. Until next time.